Hello, church, and happy Resurrection Sunday to you. Pastor Chris here coming to you through the video. Obviously, we're in uh, Kenya this morning. We're in Nairobi, Kenya for Easter Sunday. And so in honor of that, I have prepared and pre-prepared and worn my Easter egg Africa shirt. So I'm going to minister to you this last lesson on the Revelation, the tribulation timeline from this. So let's get started. We'll get into the Word of God and, and prayer, and we'll, we'll work through this, our last lesson. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for this last and final lesson on the tribulation and the revelation and the timeline. I ask you to bless our understanding. I ask you, Lord, to bless this video and this pre-recorded message. May the truths of your word still carry through. May the anointing of God and the teacher's anointing still be manifest in this Sunday school classroom. Bless those who have spent time with us studying the revelation and all the blessings and benefits of the promise of the prophecy. Father, bless these listeners. Bless this church. Let them have a great Easter Sunday, a great resurrection celebration service. We thank you for helping us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this is the final lesson, lesson 13, and we've entitled it the Tribulation Timeline. I thought I would show you uh, just exactly, roughly, how many books I have spent the last six or seven months studying. This is all of them. There might be, I think, two that are not present. They're at the house. There might be a third one. As you can see, we've covered a lot of material. Please don't think by any means I've read everything in these texts. Some of them I have read almost everything to them. Some of them I use them as study guides or as cross-references. But as you can see, this is a, a tremendous study that we've endeavored to undertake. We have by no means covered everything in the Revelation in these 13 lessons. But my heart has been to give you a general enough working outline and, and a familiarity with the subjects and the precepts and the concepts in the Revelation that if you go and study it in the future, or if you hear things referenced, you have a good working knowledge of what that is, what it refers to, and how it applies to you. I want to jump in, though, and I want to do a daunting study on the tribulation timeline. I call it daunting because I've only found one man in all of these books who would dare, I take it back, two men in all of these books that would try to put a timeline to what's gone on. And it's because so there's, some things are just vague. There's no, there's no 100% given accuracy on every event of the tribulation. And uh, I think the only encouraging thing is if we're off, we're not going to be off more than seven years because the whole thing takes place in seven years. So we're plus or minus less than seven years. So let's get into our lesson and uh, we'll cover this uh, critical lesson. Now that we've studied all the major characters and events from the book of Revelation, we can put them together in a cohesive timeline and produce a working timeline of what the Bible calls Daniel's 70th week. There's no general consensus, as I've just said, on the exact timeline of every detailed event of the tribulation. Some things are just said, and you kind of have to put together through contextual clues, or it has to be before this, but it has to be after that. And how much before or after known events, we don't know, so we kind of give a rough timeline. The chronologies of some events are very clear, while others are more vague. And that's just part of it. But again, if we're off, we're off by less than seven years. We will major in this lesson on clearly placed timelines or clearly placed events, and we'll just minor on those that are uncertain. 
And so I've, I've made uh, large numbers for those events that are known, that we, we know exactly when they're going to take place or when they kick things off. And then the rest of the stuff is gonna be sublettered or subtitled underneath those when we don't know. Is it plus or minus six months? Is it roughly in this phase of time? And so again, the whole time period we're covering is seven years. I think what should strike us more than anything is how much Bible and these 12, now 13 weeks we've been studying this, how much Bible has been dedicated to seven years of time? Think, think about uh, the book of Genesis covers about 1,500 years of mankind's history. And we have this much scripture dedicated to just seven years of Jewish time, of, of Daniel's 70th week. So even if we're off, we're still pretty accurate because it's just seven years of time and intense amount of Bible data given us what's going to happen. So let's look at the general timeline. The revelation may be best understood by evaluating the chron uh, chronological order of the events of the seven years of tribulation. We will now look at the events that will follow the departure of the church. And you can see lesson four again for more information on the rapture. So the first event that is spoken of in the revelation that is alluded to is the rapture. Uh, the exact date of this event is unknown and clearly yet future. So it, it hasn't happened yet, but we know it's going to. Nobody really knows the day or the hour. We'll know the season, but we can't say it's going to happen at this point or at that point. We know the rapture has to happen before the tribulation. But once the rapture does happen, you know the tribulation will be very close on it. What is clear is that the rapture must happen before the Antichrist can be revealed. That much we know of 100% certainty. So we're still here. The church is still here. We're still operating, preaching the gospel, living clean, living holy. And that acts as a great restraint and a great buffer and hinderer to the spirit of Antichrist doing what it wants to do, which is raise up this last dictator, this last empire. The scriptures clearly teach that the return of Jesus Christ is imminent. And what imminent means is likely to occur at any moment. The return of Jesus Christ is likely to return at any moment. We're, we're supposed to live with this immediacy. It could happen any moment now. And yet it's immediate, but it may not be, it's, excuse me, it's imminent, but it may not be immediate. It's imminent, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen today. It's going to happen, and we have to live like it's going to happen today, but yet part of our heart has to be willing to live like it's not going to happen in our lifetime. And that takes a balanced walk of faith to have a retirement, but knowing full well Jesus Christ could come back today. You have to walk that out by faith. So the real thing, number two on our list, the real thing that kicks off the tribulation is the seven-year peace treaty. This starts the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, or the time of Jacob's trouble. We know this has to be it because it's the only event described in Bible prophecy that has given a, a beginning and end time frame. Seven years. Daniel 9, 26 and 27 says, And he, the prince that shall come, the Antichrist, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, or that is one week or seven years. This is what kicks it off. Nobody knows for sure how much time passes between the rapture and this peace treaty. It could be a month, it could be an hour, it could be five years, it could be 50 years. We, we really don't know. But it is this peace treaty that kicks things off because it sets the seven-year time clock going. The political leader known biblically as the Antichrist will make a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. 
This peace treaty is the only event provided in the Bible account that corresponds to Daniel's final week of time, and therefore it is commonly believed that it will be this treaty or covenant uh, that will kickstart the seven years of tribulation. The striking question that must be asked is, what causes the need for a peace treaty with Israel? And that's what a lot of the, uh, theologians and pro prophecy experts debate. What causes this need for a peace treaty? We know Israel lives in constant turmoil right now because they're this little bitty postage stamp sized nation that's so wealthy, so blessed, so prosperous. They're not Muslim, they're Jewish. And yet they're surrounded by this great sweet sea of Arabic speaking nations and Muslim nations that are in poverty. They are, if it were not for the West's dependence on oil, the Arab nations would have zero wealth. They'd have zero reason to still be there. But there's oil there which gives them some income. They live, the, the, Israel lives in constant turmoil and they're always defending themselves and being called terrorists for defending themselves. Uh, most folks don't even know what a Palestinian is, nor do they even know where Palestine is, nor do they understand the whole political struggle of Palestine. And yet there's always this tension here, but something's going to happen. Some believe it's the battle of Gog and Magog that's uh, alluded to in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, that this will produce a war that Israel will absolutely own and because Israel's dominating, somebody has to step up and make a peace treaty with them. Otherwise, it looks like Israel will wipe everything out. Something's going to happen that causes the Antichrist and the conglomerate of nations to make a peace treaty with Israel and give Israel what they want. Now, you have to consider that. Right now, Israel does not have the Temple Mount. Israel is not allowed to put up a tabernacle or build the temple to reinstitute Mosaic worship or the worship under Moses' law. So they're going to have this peace treaty signed with the Antichrist, and yet it's going to be in their favor because it's going to give them access back to the Temple Mount, and it's going to give them permission to build a temple and begin to worship Jehovah God just like they did under the Old Testament until the time of 70 AD when Titus, not the epistle of Titus, but Titus the Roman conqueror came and destroyed Israel, or excuse me, uh, Jerusalem. So you have this, and the beginning of the tribulation is when our seven seals are opened. So that first three and a half years of the tribulation correspond to the seven seals being opened. You have the opening of the first seal, which gives rise to the politician and his political ambition. He's given a bow, and he goes forth conquering and to conquer. This will be a time, and again, we don't have major timelines on this, so we kind of put it as a subset under the seven-year peace treaty. This will be a time of great political tension throughout the world, producing wars and rumors of wars corresponding to the second seal and the red horse of Revelation chapter 6. This will be a time of inflation, financial instability, famine, and pestilence brought about by the third seal releasing the black horse. Of course, we already have a little bit of that going on in the earth right now. But once, this, once the church is gone, the peace of God is taken from the earth and all these things begin to unravel. Peace treaties are man's attempt to buy peace when there will be no peace without the Prince of Peace. Then we see an increase in Jewish persecution. Jesus Christ foretold that. Even though Israel will have a peace treaty, there seems to be, well, we don't know, we don't say it seems to be, there will be an increase in Jewish persecution, but it may be it's because they've got this peace treaty in their benefit or in their, their, uh, uh, to, their, to their benefit, and it's allowing them to do what they've always wanted to do, which is Judaize, to put forth Zionism, as the political machine calls it, and begin to institute temple worship, which the devil's going to hate because it's Israel doing what Israel does. 
The Jewish temple worship will be permitted to take place in Jerusalem with a rebuilt temple. And again, you have to understand this peace treaty favors Israel. It allows them to complete a temple, rebuild a temple, which they can't do right now, and begin to sacrifice in that temple like they did before uh, the time of Titus in 70 AD. And it will be at this time, in the beginning of this peace treaty, that the 144,000 witnesses will go forth evangelizing the world in the gospel. In Israel, Jerusalem and the Jews will be worshiping under the law, but the 144,000 Jewish witnesses or of Jewish descent, they will go forth preaching the gospel. So you see that even at this point, Jerusalem still, Israel still has not received their Messiah. A remnant has called 144,000, and they'll go evangelizing around the world, but Israel as a whole will be back under the law, sacrificing bulls and goats, red heifers and turtle doves. These 144,000 witnesses, they will reap a tremendous harvest of souls, what many consider to be the greatest harvest of souls the world has ever known. It'll make the church age almost look like we didn't accomplish much. It has been estimated that the 144,000 will witness the harvest of souls greater in that three and a half years than perhaps the church age has been able to do for 2,000 years. It's also likely that just as Jesus Christ had three and a half years of unhindered ministry, these witnesses will also have three and a half years of unhindered ministry. There's no evidence that these witnesses, these 144,000, are ever beheaded or stoned or even persecuted. Everything is really beginning to focus on ground zero, which is Jerusalem. So these guys will travel the world and, and, and begin to preach the gospel where the church was not able to get to. That's often a misnomer we have to address. We believe that Matthew 24 says that uh, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the ends of the earth, to every man, woman, and child, and then the rapture shall come. But the Bible doesn't say that. It says that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the ends of the world, and then the end shall come. And what that tells me is that even when the church is raptured, there will still be folks who've not been reached yet. If, if that were not the case, why would we need 144,000 witnesses and then two more witnesses and then the angel of Revelation 14 preaching the gospel into the ends of the earth? There's always going to be a group that needs to be preached to. There's always going to be a person coming of age that needs to hear the gospel. I don't say that to take responsibility off of us, but I do say it to take maybe some unwarranted pressure off of us. Our job is to preach the gospel, but that, those facts alone seem to tell me that we're going to be raptured out of here and there's still going to be work that needs to be done and these 144,000 witnesses will rise up to do it. All right, so the peace treaty is a definitive time and a definitive thing that takes place. We know when it kicks off, that it, the timeline, the clock is ticking. We also know that at the midway point, we at three and a half years, we have a whole bunch of events that are set in stone. They're set in the sovereignty and the providence of God. Everything between the beginning and the, end, and the middle part, you know, we, we have room in our timeline to move around as we've just read. So that brings us to our third time event, and that is the middle part of the week. There are things that are set here because the Bible tells us that they endure for 42 months or three and a half years or 1,200 days thereabout. There are multiple events that are clearly revealed to begin at the mid-tribulation point. So let me read through those and then tell you what really triggers the mid-tribulation point. You have the rapture of the great multitude 
And that is the multitude that's been saved under the testimony of the 144,000 witnesses. The great company of new believers will be raptured at the middle of the tribulation. Some believe that the 144,000 will continue to minister into the great tribulation, continuing to lead others to Christ. And we believe that because in Revelation chapter 18, when the Lord says, I'm destroying Babylon, a voice comes out of heaven, Babylon being Baghdad, a center of commerce and a, a tremendous power in the last days. A voice comes out of heaven saying, come out of her, my people. There's a voice from heaven near the very end of the tribulation that is declaring, come out of Babylon, my people, lest you be a partaker of her plagues and sins. So evidently God has got people, whether that's Jewish or born again believers, we're not sure. But a voice comes out of heaven telling them, flee the city because I'm destroying it. And how, how did they get born again unless somebody told them? So perhaps that's the work of the 144,000. Maybe that's the work of the two witnesses that are ministering during this last half of the tribulation. We don't know. We know that their people are continuing to be saved even into the last half, but it's like the gleanings of the harvest. It's not the harvest. It's what's left over. The seven trumpet judgments we know take place in and around that mid-tribulation point. These judgments are heralded in this season, concluding with the seventh trumpet resulting in Satan being cast down to earth. We know that Satan is cast down at the mid-tribulation point because then he gives his power to the Antichrist and he knows his time is short and he stirs up things being cast down to the earth, no longer in the heavenlies over the kingdoms of the world. His time is short, so he's filled with tremendous wrath and that's when he begins to persecute the Gentile, or excuse me, the Jews. Satan gives his power to the beast and causes his world dominance. Up until the midpoint, up until the three and a half years, the Antichrist is not a world dictator. He is one of ten kings that is jockeying for power and is coming to prominence. And that's, that's key to understand. The Antichrist does not begin his reign of terror and power at the signing of the peace treaty. The peace treaty buys three and a half years of false peace. But at the midway point, when he breaks that peace covenant, that's when things unfold, they fall apart, and the, the ten kings give the Antichrist their power, and they all submit to him. Well, he conquers three kings and takes their power. The other seven kings submit to him, and a new kingdom is birthed out of that. That all takes place at the season that is the mid-tribulation point. The ten kings destroy the Babylonian system. Uh, the kings will politically defer to the Antichrist and give him their power. Together they will cast off and essentially render the Babylonian religious system dead. Now everyone will be forced to worship the Antichrist. This happens at the mid-tribulation point. They destroy Babylonian worship, Babylonian, what they call spiritual or mystic Babylon, the, the worship of paganism, the, the, perhaps what will be a one-world religion. They'll cast that off. It has to be done. Because now the whole world will be commanded to worship Satan and to worship the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and his image. The abomination desolation. This is what is considered to be the marker or the, the marquee or the demarker of the mid-tribulation. But there's things that lead up to it on both sides. And so again, we call it the season of the mid-tribulation point. You can almost see the devil's temper tantrum in being kicked out of heaven by causing the Antichrist to defile the earthly temple. I, I can envision that. The Antichrist is kicked out of heaven with that seventh trumpet and he's cast down to the earth and he's so angry, he moves upon his man, the Antichrist, to go in there 
and to defile the temple and commit the abomination desolation. This is one event that can be definitively nailed down in the timeline, and we're going to discuss that more in a second. Uh, We know the beast reigns for 42 months. This, again, applies to three and a half years. From this point forward, the Antichrist, which is called the beast, will become the singular leader in charge of the revised, resurrected Roman Empire. He becomes the final beast system that we covered in the, uh, uh, the Babylonian beast system or the Babylonian systems a couple lessons ago. The Antichrist will have much trouble in his kingdom during these years. Though he will come to prominence and he'll be conquering, going forth to conquer, he'll have opposition the entire three and a half years. It's not a successful run for the Antichrist. Keep in mind, he takes three and a half years jockeying into position, and then he really only has three and a half years of ruling or trying to rule. And in the end of that three and a half years, the Lord picks him up and casts him into the lake of fire alive. And it's over that quick. The holy city of Jerusalem is tread down 42 months. When the Antichrist comes to power, commits the abomination desolation in the Temple Mount, he will possess Jerusalem, the holy city, for those 42 months. He'll occupy it. We looked at last week or two weeks ago where Zechariah says the women of Jerusalem will be raped and, and the city will be ransacked and pillaged. Some Jews will be left there, but most of them will have fled or be taken away into slavery. That may be the slavery of Babylon because uh, the Bible says that there were slaves in Babylon when the Lord destroyed it. The woman flees for 42 months. When they see the abomination desolation, the gospels command those that are in Jerusalem to flee to the mountains. Don't come back to your house. Don't, come, go, go, don't go back from the field. Don't go up to the floor. Just run for it and pray. Pray that your flight is not on the Sabbath. Well, why would there be a Sabbath? Well, because they've reinstituted temple worship, which happens on the Sabbath. The two witnesses, excuse me, the, the, this turn of events will cause the Jews to flee to the wilderness uh, where God has provided a place of refuge for them. The city being treaded down begins this horrible, horrible Jewish persecution, the great and final thrust of Jewish persecution that the devil has always tried to accomplish upon the Jews. Uh, It's at this time that the two witnesses in this season, the two witnesses begin their 42 months of ministry. The two witnesses begin their ministry at this exact time and minister almost exclusively in Jerusalem, though the Bible says they torment the inhabitants of the world. Perhaps the flight of the Jews gives way to their uprising. We don't know for sure, but perhaps as they flee, as the Jews flee to Edom and to Basra, to the mountains of the southeastern region, it causes these two witnesses, Elijah and Moses, to rise up and to do their ministry for three and a half months. Uh, Then at this point, we see the three angels warn of the coming judgments. And so in one last act of mercy, God warns the earth of the coming events and sets before them life and death. How many times has the Lord done that? He sets before the world, before the last uh, thrust of tribulation and judgment. He says, choose life. Here's life, here's death. Choose life that you may live. And he commands them to choose life. But you know they don't because mankind is stubborn. And it is at this point when Babylonian, um, mystic Babylon worship is cast off. The Antichrist claims the throne and he sits in the temple and declares himself to be God. It's at this point at the midweek, that the mark of the beast and the worship of his image is instituted by the false prophet. With the Babylonian system of worship destroyed, the false prophet institutes the mark of the beast and beast worship. Those who reject it are executed. This is what takes place in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. 
The Antichrist rises to power, his jockeying for position. Ten kings or ten, uh, maybe they're prime ministers, but they're heads of ten powers or kind of in a, in, a, in a NATO, UN nation kind of agreement, a confederate of nations. And yet out of all of that, the Antichrist comes out of it, subdues three of them. The other seven give him their power. Now he's running everything. He defiles the temple. He breaks his peace treaty with Jerusalem. He, def- uh, he, he sets himself up as God. Mark of the beast is instituted. The two witnesses rise up. The, the Jews flee. All that is, is right there at the midway point. Now, let me come back and focus on this abomination desolation because we need to understand that. The abomination desolation is a term referring to the defilement of God's holy sanctuary, the temple. This event signals the halfway point of the tribulation and a turn for the worse, for this term is first used in Daniel and then again in the Gospels, the abomination desolation. This singular event is critical to our study for three reasons. Number one, it is described in tremendous natural detail. Number two, it begins the the last three and a half year clock ticking. And number three, it kicks off the great tribulation. That's why it's critical. So what are the details? Look at Daniel 9.27 there in the New American Standard. It says, he will make a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. He'll, he'll stop the Jewish temple worship. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate, uh, even until a complete destruction, a destruction that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So that's prophesying of the Antichrist's total destruction. The Antichrist will break his peace treaty with Israel at the midway point. Daniel 11.31 says, Forces from him will arise. They will desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. That astonishes and horrifies. That lets us know that the Antichrist is going to use military power to take over Jerusalem, to ransack it, so to speak, which has been done countless times in Israel's history. And in doing that, using military might, he'll possess the city. Zechariah 14 talks about that. And he will defile the temple. He will use military might to occupy Jerusalem and take the temple. That's why uh, Jerusalem is the second stop on the Lord's return because he has to deliver Israel, or excuse me, Jerusalem from the hands of the Antichrist forces. Daniel 12, 11 says, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation that astonishes and horrifies is set up, there will be 1,290 days or three and a half years. So this is also telling us from the time that the sacrifice is abolished, it'll be three and a half years. So the time that that's done, the peace treaty's broken, the temple worship is stopped, the abomination of desolation takes place, you have three and a half years left until it's all done. He will command an end to the regular Jewish temple worship, declare himself to be God, and possibly erect an idol in the Holy of Holies. This will begin the last three and a half years known as the Great Tribulation. All right, we're moving right along here. Hopefully you're following all this. We're trying to summarize the book of Revelation in five pages and 45 minutes. Matthew 24, 15 says, When you therefore shall see the abomination, the desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, who, who, he who read it, let, let him understand. So Jesus is referring to what Daniel spoke of, this abomination desolation. Mark 13, 14 also says, But when you see the abomination desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. 
And that's that commandment. You got to get out of Dodge, get out of Jerusalem because it's all about to fall apart and you don't want to be anywhere near the Antichrist's kingdom. This act will begin the final great persecution of the Jews. God commands them to flee to the mountains. And so this is that major nail, that major pinpoint in the middle of the tribulation that changes everything. The first half is pretty bad. Tumultuous, famine, pestilence, wars, rumors of wars, sickness, disease. But it's not as bad as it's about to get when the Antichrist receives all the fullness of the devil. He has a false prophet and he begins to declare himself to be God and everybody must now worship him. That brings us to the great tribulation, which is what Jesus Christ described the last three and a half years. This is the period of time when the the last of the judgments of God, the seven bowl judgments, are poured out. And uh, what we should mention is that during the first half of the tribulation, you, again, you have the seven seals unveiled, and then you have the seven trumpets heralded. In the last half of the tribulation, you have the last seven bowls poured out, and they're poured out over the length of that last three and a half years. So over seven years, you have 21 judgments that come from God. The first 14 begin at the at the signing of the peace treaty and kind of conclude right there at the midweek point and the last seven pick up at the midweek point and are concluded at the great day of God. This is the period of time when the last of the judgments of God are poured out. The gospel summarizes it as a time of tribulation, affliction, vengeance, great distress, and wrath. Matthew 24, 21 says, for then shall be great tribulation. The then refers to the midweek point the abomination desolation for then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time nor shall ever be mark 13 says uh, for in those days shall be affliction such as not was from the beginning of the creation which god created unto this time neither shall be and then luke 21 22 and 23 says for these be the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled But woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. This people, of course, referring to the Jews, the wrath being the wrath of the Antichrist. So that begins the last half of the tribulation. He he defiles the temple, the Jews must flee, and the Antichrist begins to establish his kingdom. Now again, he only has three and a half years to do it. And he begins to establish it with military might. Because the devil is a furious man or a furious being. He knows his time is short. So he's not doing anything through much politics. The politics with the Antichrist was the first three and a half years. This is all military conquest. This is cutting a wide swath of human casualties with as many weapons as possible. I want you to know, though, that the Antichrist, has, uh, he has military conquest in those three and a half years, but he also has opposition the whole time. The Antichrist will work to expand his empire in these short three and a half years, but he will be met with opposition. The Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 11 that he will make and produce enemies from the north, the south, and the east, and they will rise up to oppose him. So he's going to try to start a world order or a world kingdom, but he's going to be resisted on every side. Now, if you notice, it's north, south, and east. There's no west because the Mediterranean Sea is to his west. But he's basically upset Russia, he's upset uh, the Arabs and the Asians to the east, and he's upset, the Bible says specifically, Egypt to the south. And all of these are going to come up and try to fight him. And what they'll end up doing is trying to fight against the Lord Jesus on that great day. 
I want you to, in a sense, I guess, be encouraged, though we won't be here, that the Antichrist only gets three and a half years of pure power to take over the world, and he can't even do it. Three and a half years, and all he does is make enemies around him in that region, and they come to fight him. It is also during this three and a half years of the Great Tribulation that the marriage supper of the land occurs, and it occurs right before we return with the Lord. So let's review this last three and a half years. You've got the seven bold judgments being poured out, boils, water sources turning to blood. You've got the sun scorching and burning people. You've got the the demons coming out of uh, the mouth of the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon uh, stirring up the armies of the east, the kings of the east, drying up the river, the Euphrates River, and judgment being poured out in great darkness upon the Antichrist kingdom. Darkness so great it's painful and it causes them to gnaw their tongue. At the same time, the, the Antichrist is going forth with his military conquest. He's trying to butcher the Jews in Israel. It's not working. He sends a, a contingent of, of military down into Basra and to Edom to try to butcher the Jews. But the Bible says that the ground, the earth opens up and helps Israel. And perhaps it swallows them alive or who knows what that means. Maybe the earth opening up refers to Gentiles there helping the Jews and protecting them. Uh, we don't know for sure. At the same time, you've got the Antichrist being opposed from the north and opposed from the east and opposed from the south. And the Bible says tidings from these directions come and they worry him and trouble him. Because again, the Antichrist is just a man. He's born of a woman. He goes through school. He's just a man just possessed of the devil. And he's not going to win. Three and a half years is a very short time. My daughter is only four. And so in her lifetime, the Antichrist would have tried, failed, and gone straight to hell. That's how short a blip this is. It's also near the end of this tribulation that we, we can place the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we know it has to occur before we come back with Jesus Christ on the horses of, of war because it, that's how it falls in the scriptures there in Revelation chapter 19. Uh, we must say, though, that not much is known about this event, only that it does take place. The Lord Jesus spoke a lot of marriage suppers in the Gospels, but he never alludes them or, or ties them to this event. But we, we know he liked to use marriages and marriage events, the bridegroom and the groom and the friend of the bridegroom. These are all pictures of the kingdom in different perspectives and aspects. The saints are next seen on their white horses coming with the Lord. So we go to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and there's a lot of debate on who's invited, who is the bride. We know the groom is Jesus Christ. John the Baptist says he's a friend of the groom, so he's not the bride. Folks want to insert the church there and say the church is the bride, yet Revelation 21 says the bride is the new Jerusalem. So we have a lot of scriptural tension there. I believe the bride is the heavenly Jerusalem, but at the same time, there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride is all saints, past, present, and future, and yet we've got saints who are at the marriage supper who were invited there, but they're not the bride. I've not worked that out. We're not going to be able to cover that in these lessons, so it's something worth studying on your own. Nobody agrees on what that is, so we have to move along. We're going to minor on the minors and major on the majors. That brings us to the last day of the tribulation. So what kicks it off is the Antichrist signing a peace treaty with with Israel. What culminates it is the Christ coming back and breaking the Antichrist. On the last day of the tribulation, the two witnesses are raptured. That would be Moses and Elijah. They are killed. 
by the beast that comes out of the sea. They lie dead for three and a half days, and after three and a half days of lying in the streets, they'll be resurrected and, and raptured. On this last day of the tribulation, the Lord returns to Basra and Edom. We should say he probably returns first to Babylon, wipes Babylon out. Then he moves to Basra and Edom to deliver the Jews that are in hiding there. Then he moves along to Jerusalem to deliver the city and wipe out those forces. Then the Lord moves and completes this day of vengeance in Armageddon in the valley of Jezreel where he destroys the armies of the east and the armies of the north and the armies of the south. It is at this time that the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire. The battles, the whole military war lasts one day. It involves, I guess we could say four battles. Babylon's destroyed in a day. Basra and Edom are destroyed and Israel's preserved. Jerusalem and the enemies there are destroyed, Israel's preserved. And all the enemy armies that are still at Jezreel are destroyed, wiped out. And God delivers Israel once again. It's at this time also that an angel comes and grabs Satan himself, binds him with a chain, throws him into the abyss. Satan's never been to the abyss. Satan has never been to hell. That's a common uh, erroneous charismatic confession. You go back to hell from whence you came. Satan never came from hell uh, and he's not going there yet. He will one day go there, but an angels is going to be the one that's going to cast him down to hell, bind him, and then put a seal over the abyss for a thousand years. Satan is bound and chained by an angel and cast into the abyss for 1,000 years. And this 1,000 years is what starts the millennial reign of Christ. It's the same. It's a parallel time period. And it's at this point on this last day of the tribulation when the, is when the Lord judges the nations. The Bible tells us he'll, he'll gather in Matthew 25. He'll gather all the nations together and he'll judge them. And this will probably take place at this new valley that has opened between and the Mount of Olives. It's open, it runs west to east because the Mount of Olives, when the Lord Jesus steps down on it, is split from north to south. And it says a wide valley was opened up. When the Bible uses terms like wide, I think they mean wide. This is what many believe Joel refers to when he says the valley of decision or Jehoshaphat, the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. So this could be a name, Jehoshaphat, or it could be a Hebrew declaration of the valley where the Lord judges. Anyway, so the Lord's going to judge the nations there. And Matthew 25 says he will separate the nations as, as one does sheep from goats. And he will judge them, apparently, from what Matthew 25 says, based on how they treated his brethren, who would be the Jews, so we know the parable or the story there in Matthew 25 has been preached every other way, but the, uh, where it says, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, well, that's in context to the nations being judged and some being determined to be sheep and some determined to be goats. And it says that some nations will be shocked. When did we do this to you? When did we feed you when you were hungry? When did we clothe you? When did we visit you in prison? Maybe there'll be POW camps. Then there'll be apparently some nations that do a humanitarian work to benefit the Jews during this last three and a half years, and the nations will be judged based on that. And then he'll say to the nations that are judged as sheep, enter into the kingdom, which is the millennial reign, that the Lord has prepared for you, for the righteous. And so that takes place here. The Lord's kingdom will be ruled from Jerusalem with his faithful saints promoted to a position of leadership. 
The Lord will judge the nations and establish his millennial kingdom. And the faithful saints will be set over nations and set over cities as the parables declared in the end of the gospels. Uh, Thou good and faithful servant, you've been faithful and multiplied this to 10 talents. Here, take 10 cities. Here, take five cities. Here, rule with the rod of iron. You've been faithful. This provokes us as believers to be as faithful to the kingdom now because how we're faithful to the gospel kingdom and the kingdom of the church and what the Lord's doing through the church will be directly proportional or our rewards will be directly proportional in the millennial kingdom. And that's why we can say there may be some fancy pants ministers right now who live in, in multi-multi-billion dollar mansions that they may do nothing but serve kosher hot dogs in the streets of Israel pushing a little hot dog vending machine because they weren't really faithful to what the Lord gave them to, uh, to be over. Yet at the same time, you might have an old grandmother, a widow, who isn't over much of anything, but maybe the nursing home ministry or the children's department, and she prays all the time, we might be under her in the millennial kingdom. She might be over five nations because she was so faithful to serve the Lord in Peru as a little Peruvian praying mama. That's how the kingdom works. Mankind will continue having children and advancing life during this 1,000-year reign of Christ. Christ will be in charge King David will sit on the throne over Israel, and then others will rule other nations. I'm convinced from these studies here that some nations won't even exist anymore because they will be judged and they'll be goats and they'll be cast off into eternal darkness. Some nations are just doomed. Some nations are so godless and so doomed that only a small remnant of people will be saved there, and then the nation will just be wiped out completely. The Lord's done it time and time again. You can't find Nineveh today. You can't find Sodom and Gomorrah today. These nations were just wiped out because they rebelled against God. You can't find any modern-day Ninevites. You can find modern-day Persians. You can find modern-day Ethiopians. You can find modern-day Egyptians, but you can't find modern-day Canaanites or Ninevites. They're just gone because they were wiped out. Rebellion will be impossible due to the Lord's rod of iron. There will be no sin no death during this millennial reign because the Lord will rule. Uh, death will be stopped. Destruction will be stopped. Rebellion and sin will be stopped for this thousand-year reign. It will be impossible to sin and rebel against Jesus Christ. But at the end of this thousand-year reign, the Bible tells us that Lucifer himself, Satan himself, will be unleashed from that abyss for a short time. And what he will do is he will stir up the, the peoples of the world to tempt them because they've never been given a temptation. They have to be given a tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just like Adam and Eve did. They have to have life and death set before them at least once so they can choose God freely. That's why the Lord will unleash Satan one last time. And though these generations of people will have seen the goodness of God and enjoyed his blessing and his healing, the Bible tells us that a company as innumerable as the sand of the sea will choose to rebel against God and come up to battle against him again at another battle of Gog and Magog. And they will encamp again against the camp of the saints and against the, that city, Jerusalem. And this final battle takes place at Jerusalem again. And yet this time the Lord doesn't do anything but send fire from heaven to consume them. Satan is at that point taken and thrown into the lake of fire forever. He's done with forever. And then the next thing we see is the great white throne of judgment. 
This is not the judgment seat of Christ. This is the great white throne of judgment. This is where the final judgment of all wicked dead of all time are brought before God. They're found to be wicked and wanting. And at this point, they will all be cast into the lake of fire. Up until this time, only Lucifer, excuse me, only Satan will be in the lake of fire, the false prophet and uh, the beast. But now at this point, all the dead will be brought out of hell and they will be cast into the lake of fire. And the Bible says that Satan, the wicked, death, and hell are all cast into the lake of fire. Death apparently is a, a corporal being that can be cast into hell, the lake of fire, excuse me. And hell is some kind of entity that can also be cast into the lake of fire. And this is what the Bible calls the second death. You die the first time, that's the first death. And when you die the first time, the first death without Jesus Christ, you go to hell. But there's coming a time when life is going to get worse because see, even the damned live forever. Their eternal life is spent in hell until the, second, until the great white throne of judgment. And at that point, their death becomes a second death and they die again all over again forever and ever and ever. And it's at this point that the Bible concludes its narrative with the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And the bride of Christ comes down from heaven. That's the new Jerusalem. And it's all saints of all times combined together. And it sits upon the earth. And that's where we rule for God, with God for the ages to come. That's the increase of his kingdom that knows no end. The Bible concludes with a new heaven and a new earth. I'm all for conservation, but we're not going to save this planet because God doesn't want it saved. I'm all for clean water and I'm all for, you know, those don't go pouring mercury in the streams or anything, but our job is not to save the planet. Our job is to save people through the preaching of the gospel. So in the end, the, the Lord reveals his face, heaven and earth melt away, and there is a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, and God is the light. There's no longer a sun or a planet because the heavens have melted. The heaven and earth pass away and now God is the light of the new earth and God is the light of the new Jerusalem and we walk in his countenance and he makes all things new and he wipes away every tear and we enjoy God and his presence and his goodness for the ages to come. And that concludes our 13 weeks on the revelation. And again, uh, this was uh, 58 pages long. Most of these books here are much longer than that. So you've got to know we didn't cover everything, but I trust it has edified you. It has enriched your understanding and knowledge. I trust that our teaching and studies have given you a greater love for the word of God and an appreciation. And above all, that it has given you a peace and a confidence for these last days that we live in. I love you guys. Pray for us. We're still a week from returning from Uganda and Kenya. Have a great resurrection Sunday morning. Let me pray and uh, we'll have a few minutes before service. Father, bless this lesson, this final lesson on the revelation. And I pray that these studies and these lessons have glorified you. May they help the saints of God in the years to come as they listen to them through CD and pod school and MP3. Father, bless the listener and the doer of the words of the prophecy of the revelation. May their lives be rich and their walk with you glorious. We love you, Lord, and give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.